Father, thank you so much for the privilege and pleasure of being in your house today. Thank you that we are among those who get to call themselves after the name of your Son, Christ our Lord. Thank you that his life, his death, and his resurrection give us a mandate for a life less ordinary. And pray that you will be with us this Christmas time in all our thinkings and doings, that we may reflect his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Christmas is uh, right round the corner, isn't it? And over Christmas, you may well be at a drinks gathering or a meal or some family occasion or a community event where someone asks you, why did you go to that carol service you've just got back from? Or, or why do you want to go to midnight communion? Or, or why are you not um, doing the cooking on Christmas morning? Are you just trying to sky from, from the Brussels sprout duty? Um, what's it all about anyway? And the chances are that as they lay into you, as it sometimes happens, maybe mainly to me because I've got one of these collars on, that as they lay into you, it may be that the evidence that they're using is based not so much on historic inquiry, but on a novel that they happened to read a few years ago or a film that they watched with Tom Hanks in it. Because in 2001, a book called The Da Vinci Code was published um, by a man called Dan Brown, and it was a huge bestseller. And if you uh, happen to have listened online to my talk last week, um, then um, you, you will have heard me elaborate a bit on what, what he said in his book. For example, he said that the Catholic Church has kept the true facts about Christianity hidden through force and terror, that Jesus was in fact married to Mary Magdalene, who was the head apostle. The Holy Grail is not a chalice used at the Last Supper, but the womb of Mary Magdalene, who bore to Jesus a daughter, who was called Sarah, by the way, just in case you didn't know. And the descendants of those two lovely people became the kings and queens of France. What was wrong with the English line? I'm not sure. Uh, Jesus was not the son of God, according to the early church, says Mr. Brown. He was just a mortal prophet who inspired many, and he was indeed a radical feminist two millennia ahead of his time. The pagan emperor Constantine was the one who voted in in a council to upgrade Jesus to the role of deity, and he only became son of God by narrow vote of a group of bishops. And um, Constantine wanted to do this to retain power. Now, last week, if you happen to have heard the talk, um, we went through the source documents that Dan Brown claims to be using. He claims to be using three. One's called Q, one's called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and one's called Nag Hammadi. And I don't have time to go through all those things again, but suffice to say, only two out of three of them bear any relevance to what he's talking about. Uh, And those are the ones that point to what are called the Gnostic Gospels. These are very famous if you ever turn to a Channel 4 documentary, um, because Channel 4 will constantly tell you about the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gospel of Philip, or indeed the Gospel of Mary. And uh, we looked at this in in detail last week. It's it's worth looking at again if you're interested online. Um, But essentially, these Gospels were written uh, around 250 to 400 years AD, uh, and they say various different things. Um, about Jesus. The the, the main one, Gospel of Thomas, uh, overlaps with the the Gospels that we have, the canonical Gospels, but then adds in some other things. And the Gospel of um, of Philip 
um, which talks about Jesus kissing Mary Magdalene is, is one of the key ones for Dan Brown. But all of these were written several centuries later on than the original gospel. So Dan Brown's source evidence we looked at um, was, was, was pretty shaky. And then in the end of that talk, I just mentioned orthodoxy and how G.K. Chesterton said that orthodoxy is far more radical and far more scary than any of the heresies that have been designed ever since. So just a little bit of background sort of history. And no doubt, at some point over the next fortnight, uh, there will be an article in the Mail or Guardian or Independent or Times or Telegraph, probably on Christmas morning, explaining why the shepherds didn't come to find a cave or a stable, why the, why the stars in the sky were uh, something of an imagination or comets, and why you can't trust anything. What do we do when we're faced with these? What, what, what do we do in that moment at the dinner party? Everyone had a moment like that where someone's just gone on you. Well, what do we do? Well, the thing that strikes me as, as most important is to um, get to my wallet. <laughs> and in my wallet, I would draw out um, a banknote. Um, and if I, if I stare at the banknote, it might, maybe it's a 50-pound banknote. For, for me, it's more likely to be a tenner. Um, and I look at it, I can see a watermark through the banknote. And if I feel it, I've already got a sense of what it is just as I rummage through my pocket. I know it's not a receipt. It's, it's a note, isn't it? And I know the weightiness of the paper. I know that it's relatively hard to rip. I know it's got a, a nice um, strip in it, a magnetic strip. And it's got this lovely seal. It's actually got Charles Darwin's face on, on the back as well, and a hummingbird um, somewhere sort of singing and there's a signature of the chief cashier of the Bank of England. And I'm familiar with the banknote. And I imagine you are as well. And if you reach for a five-pound note, you know automatically it feels a bit different. It has a different texture, but it's still quantifiably a banknote, isn't it? You know the paper that it's from. And it's nice and there. And if you were a cashier in a major bank... The way they, they would train you to know whether this banknote was genuine or not would be to give you genuine banknotes. They, they would say, here's a genuine banknote. Have a look at it. Get used to it. Get familiar with it. And, and when you know what it's like, you'll be able to spot a counterfeit. So if I next came to you and gave you a £1,000 from, from the Monopoly set, um, and, and I said, what do you think of that? You would note straight away that it's just on printed paper. Um, that the idea of it being worth a thousand pounds or ten thousand pounds seems a bit of a strange idea. It seems a bit way out there. Not many people have a thousand pound notes in their pocket, um, and that it doesn't have the right face on it, and anything in between. You you'd be able to discern quite quickly if it wasn't genuine. So the first thing that I would suggest to someone saying, um, "How do you know that what you believe in is true?" is say, "Well, I've examined." the founder of what I believe in, and his life looks quite sensible to me. Have you ever had a look for yourself? So, for example, um, I might look at Jesus and say, well, what does he say about himself? And, and different people have said different things about Jesus, but, but Freud, the great psychologist, said that people are hungry for love, and Jung said that people are hungry for security. Adler said that people are hungry for significance. And Jesus said, well, I'm the bread of life. In other words, if you want your hunger satisfied, come to me. Many people 
especially maybe at this time of year, are walking in darkness and depression and despair. They're looking for direction. And Jesus said, look, I'm the light of the world. Others are fearful of death. I often talk to people who are scared of dying. Um, Sometimes people say that they, they can't sleep at night, they're so scared. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you won't perish. Others just come heavy with burdens. And he says, cast your burdens on me. I care for you. My burden is light. There was once a a well-told story of a a child who's drawing a picture. And her mum says, what are you drawing? And she says, I'm drawing a picture of God, precociously, uh, as children do. And the mum says, don't be silly. No one knows what God looks like. And the child says, well, by the time I finish, they will do. <laughs> and that's effectively what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, when you look at me, you can know who God is. Not only all these things from his teaching, but he also indirectly claims to be able to forgive sins. It's an extraordinary thing to do. Uh, and so many people are weighed down with burdens and problems. And, and yet here is one who claims to forgive sins. He also said, when when someone said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? He said, I am, and you're going to see me coming down on the clouds of heaven in glory. And and they tried to stone him for it because they knew he he was saying that he was God. One of his disciples knelt down before him and said, my Lord and my God. What a strange bunch of things for someone to claim. If you went to do a straw poll on the high street, or indeed at your drinks party, your office drinks party, of what people think Jesus said about himself, I'm guessing these won't be the things that come top of the list. They're almost certainly, from my experience, will say something like, he said uh, that we should love one another, which he indeed did. And they might even go as far as to say, well, he suggested that we should all be nice to one another, and they killed him for it, as um, Eddie Izzard once said, I think. But actually, the teachings of Jesus were far more challenging and far more direct and far more in your face than that. Um, Bernard Ram, a professor of theology, said this about his teachings. He said, they're read more, quoted more, loved more, believed more, and translated more because they are the greatest words ever spoken. Their greatness lies in the pure, lucid spirituality in dealing clearly, definitively, and authoritatively with the greatest problems that throb in the human breast. No other man's words have the appeal of Jesus' words because no other man can answer these fundamental human questions as Jesus answered them. They are the kinds of words and kinds of answer that we would expect God to give. How could this sort of teacher be insane? And you hear his words have such a high regard to them. What about what he did with his life? Well, his life was one we know of of healing the sick, of caring for people. He honored his mother extremely well when she was probably a widow from his early days. He opened blind eyes and he uh, was able to walk on water in calm storms. He cared for outcasts in society, for lepers, for prostitutes, for people ignored by other people. He touched people who others wouldn't go near. He had a a lovely regard for children when they were second-class citizens and also for for women who he honoured and and instated into the role of being disciples in different ways. And when he was tortured to death cruelly on the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what he's doing. 
His character, his, his actions seem quite extraordinary. It's, it's been said by um, Lord Hailsham, the Lord Chancellor, former Lord Chancellor, that the first thing we must learn about Jesus is that we would have been absolutely entranced by his company. Jesus was irresistibly attractive as a person. What they crucified was a young man, vital, full of life and the joy of it, the Lord of life itself, and even more the Lord of laughter, someone so utterly attractive that people followed him for the sheer fun of it. The 20th century needs to recapture the vision of this glorious and happy man whose mere presence filled his companions with delight. So you can say, look, I've looked at the banknote. It's pretty impressive. Have you ever looked at it yourself? Have you ever paused to read Mark's gospel? It'll, it'll take an hour and three quarters, the same length of time as watching Fred Claus this Christmas on ITV. <laughs> what would be the better use of your time? Uh, great thing. But you may say to me, well, Richard, you know, you're preaching to the choir here. And it did sound rather good when you were singing that carol. I have to say, you're, you're preaching to the choir. Of course, we, we get it. We, we get that Jesus' character, his works, and his teaching were splendid. We understand that the claims he made about himself were extraordinary and not the claims of just a sort of a rational human being who, who wasn't also what he claimed to be. You can't say those things uh, without backing up. We, we, we get that. Um, we, we've bought the banknote. We've seen the banknote. But, but my friends at the drinks party, they're, they're not going there. They're, they're, they're still stuck in this novel they've been reading. Um, I, I can't get them to, to read Mark's Gospel. It's, it's just beyond it. Um, so you, you might then turn to say, well, okay, fair enough. Let's have a look at the Monopoly banknote instead and see what that note's like. Um, is there anything to back up what Dan Brown has been saying? And, and, and as I said, I, I did some of the building work for this last week in a, a talk you can listen to again uh, online. But one of the claims that, that Dan Brown makes is that, there, that Mary was married to Jesus. Is there any evidence for that? Or is he allowed to just do the postmodern thing of chucking out a whole bunch of things? They all just sort of sit there up there, and then we, we hold up our hands in confusion and go, oh, I can't know what's going on. Everyone's got different ideas. They're all equally valid ideas. Um, I quit. I give up. Because that's basically what we're trained to do in postmodern education. We're trained to ask questions. I'm looking at a head teacher now. and eyeballing her. <laughs> Repent, teachers. We're taught to ask questions, but never to actually gather any facts or investigate truth. I'm now looking at a judge for, um, for backing on this. Because it's, that, that's the way our culture works. And it's the way the dinner party works, and it's the way the media works. One of the great quotes from the, uh, the new series, The Newsroom, by Aaron Sorkin, is that the news shouldn't have to be balanced because sometimes it isn't balanced. And what he meant by balanced in, in the American system, if there was a story about Republicans, you'd then have a story about Democrats. Even if there were a hundred Republicans turn up for something and no Democrats turned up to something, you have to bring the other thing in. But of course, that's not how it really happened. And sometimes the weight is in one direction. Is it the scripture versus Dan Brown? Or is it more like this, where they're so out of kilter that one rises to the top and the other just plummets into destruction? Postmodernity says they're all there together. Take your pick, which one do you like? But we, we know that we can look beyond that to facts and try and work out if there's evidence. So who was Mary Magdalene? What do the earliest documents we have say about her? Well, 
she's there in the Gospels. She's not hidden. She has a prominent and, and lovely role. She's one of the women who accompanied Jesus' ministry. She's possibly the first person to witness him after the resurrection. She has a prized role. She's there at his burial, his crucifixion. And, um, and she's clearly valued by Jesus. Some suggest that she's the woman who had a number of uh, demons cast out of her. But that's, um, that's not, not at all a given. It's, it's uncertain who, who that woman was. But in these early documents that we have, she's never mentioned as his wife. Any suggestion that she was his wife would have, been, would have been sensational and would clearly have been seized on by his enemies at different points in what he was saying. So where does this idea that she was his wife come from? Well, Dan Brown gets it from the Gnostic Gospel of Philip, which was written in the mid-third century. And there's something in it about how Jesus apparently kisses her. But if you look at another Gnostic text, the Apocalypse of James, the second Apocalypse of James, it also describes, and again, this is centuries after Jesus, um, a secret mystery where, James, uh, where Jesus apparently imparts mysteries to James by kissing him on the mouth and calling him, my beloved. Was he also married to James? <laughs> No, this is a funny way these these strange Gnostic people um, would describe a passing on of information. It's a non-sexual, symbolic act, very similar to what the Gospel of Philip says about Jesus with Mary Magdalene. The people writing both these things weren't there, they weren't eyewitnesses. It's a bit like if I rocked up and started writing a biography just off the top of my head of um, Wilberforce a couple of centuries on. I never met him, never encountered him, hadn't really got into the evidence of, the, of his life. But I, I had an affinity to his fight, fighting of the slave trade. And I thought, well, you know, this is the sort of thing that Wilberforce would have done. And I've had this mystic revelation about it, and here I'm penning. It's a bit like the way they write the Daily Mail, <laughs> just sort of making it up as you go along. That's a slightly political comment. Um, and, um, and do you see the validity of it? It's very low, isn't it? Very low down there compared to earlier texts that you, that you can hold against him. What then of Constantine? This again is one of those things that, that comes out often in these conversations. I'm going to say, Christianity, it was just invented by a Roman empire who wanted to control people. This is, this is what Brown says. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible which omitted those gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up, and burned. But fortunately for historians, some of the Gospels Constantine attempted to eradicate managed to survive. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the 1950s in a, in a cave near Qumran. And of course, the Coptic Scrolls at Nag Hammadi in 1945. In addition to telling the true Grail story, these documents speak of Christ's ministry in very human terms. Well, again, last week's talk will explain that, that at least one of those sources is, is absolutely irrelevant to this case. But the key point of what he's saying is, is that these, um, these, uh, these other documents make Christ more human. And the opposite is exactly the case. Um, it's, the, it's the Gnostic Gospels, these later Gospels, that omitted Christ's human traits and embellished early accounts to make him more godlike. It's one of the reasons that they were excluded from the, the canons. The New Testament, as, you, as you'll know if you've been in this church for a while, assumes a very human Jesus who gets tired, who mourns the death of his friends, who gets angry, who loves, who's tempted, who obeys his parents. 
Quite the opposite of the claims in here. And is it true that before 325, no one thought that Jesus was divine? Well, again, if you've looked at the New Testament at all, if you've looked at the banknote at all, as it were, um, you'll know that's not true at all. So the Apostle Paul, for example, writing from, say, the AD, AD 48 onwards, um, talks of, of Jesus as one Lord, Jesus Christ, through him all things came. In a, another later um, one, in AD 60, he says that Jesus was the image of the invisible God. By him all things were made. But you don't have to turn to the New Testament to see evidence that people worship Jesus as God. The Emperor Pliny, uh, the, the Roman governor Pliny in 112 AD, says that the Christians were in the habit of meeting regularly before dawn to chant those verses alternately among themselves in honor of Christ as to a God. Church fathers like Ignatius in the start of the second century, end of the first, said uh, that Jesus was our God, Jesus Christ. Justin Martyr, second century, he was God. Melito of Sardis, second century, being God and likewise perfect man. Irenaeus, the end of the second century, said he is the Holy Lord, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. Clement of Alexander, tipping into the third century, says he alone is both man and God. Tertullian, for Christ is also God. Do you get the point? I'm just sort of picking up the evidence a little bit on this side. The well before Constantine, we have all these texts where people clearly worship Jesus as God. Not only that, dating back into the New Testament and showing who he was. So, so what did happen at Constant, uh, with Constantine and Isaiah? here? Well, Dan Brown suggests that um, Constantine upgraded Jesus to deity and that he was baptized sort of against his will on his deathbed when he was too weak to protest. Um, now it's true that Constantine was baptized on his deathbed. Back in the day, people were baptized on their deathbeds a lot because they didn't want to sin after they'd been baptized. So they deferred their baptism right to the end so they'd then have a nice little entry point into, into heaven. Um, it, was, it was a fairly normal thing, but, but Constantine had uh, been uh, sort of a Christian empire. Was, you know, some, of, some of his stuff was, was better than others, but he humanized the criminal laws and the laws of debt. He mitigated the conditions of slavery and made grants to support poor, poor children. He discouraged the exposure of unwanted babies and freed celibates and unmarried people from special taxes and legislated against promiscuity. Back in 321, he ordered that Sunday should become the public holiday. What he did at Nicaea was call together 250 bishops and to work out whether what a group of people called the Arians were doing was right or wrong. And, and that, that produced the Nicene Creed that we often say in church. And 90, well, all but two of the bishops, 99.4%, um, were in favor of the Nicene Creed. So it wasn't a tiny majority that made Jesus deity. It was basically everyone apart from two um, at this thing who, who agreed with this complicated creed that theologians have to write long essays about at undergraduate level. F.F. Um, Bruce says, says this, one thing must be emphatically stated. The New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally included in a canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and general apostolic authority, direct or indirect. The first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books were held in North Africa, Hippo Regis in 393 and Carthage in 397. But what these councils did was not impose something new 
upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practices of those communities. And if you've been on the Alpha course, you'll you'll have learned all sorts of other information about uh, the sources, the documents we have from the the New and Old Testament, and how, for example, compared to Caesar's Gallic Wars, where we have nine or ten copies that are only about a thousand years old, um, there there are evidence for Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, which no one doubts. Uh, Compared to that, we have 5,000 Greek, 10,000 Latin, and 9,500 other um, full or part manuscripts of the New Testament, dating back um, all the way back to um, to 300. And if you go to the British Library, you can see a a tiny fragment of John's Gospel that dates to the second century as well. The evidence for the Christian faith for the banknote is pretty overwhelming. Certainly enough to put your hat on uh, when you walk into a room and someone says, uh, I've read Dan Brown, how dare you believe what you believe? (laughs) It's it's a reasonable fight. In fact, it's not a very reasonable fight. You've got knockout blow after knockout blow to push down the stupidity of the argument that he claims in the, uh, the opening sort of pages of the book is actually built on facts. It's built on, on rubbish. But post-modernity holds everything out together and says that this is a fair fight between equals. Even though he's just doing that, um, oh, Wilberforce thing. I'm just going to make up what Wilberforce did 200 years ago. And right, did you see? See how it works out? So we've looked at the real banknote. Jesus, what an amazing guy he was. Amazing things he said. If you've never looked closely at him, do read Mark's Gospel this Christmas or, or pick up a Why Christmas book um, or come on out for the next term. We've had a look at the monopoly money uh, of Dan Brown. And see, it might be that in a dinner party you say, you know, well, well have a look at my banknote or, or let's expose your banknote for what it is. And if all that doesn't come to much, you may be feeling a bit naughty, maybe you've had a couple of mulled wines, maybe three or four, who knows. And you might just uh, conclude by saying, well... I'm not sure I'd have enough faith to believe what you think you believe. <laughs> you really believe all this happened by utter accident? The, the, the odds of life just forming from nothing and gradually evolving into complicated lifespans are apparently the same odds of a typewriter being chucked out into the universe, a monkey catching it, starting typing on it, and coming up with the Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> you really believe this has no hand behind it? no origin behind it, no purpose behind it. You really believe that your life is utterly pointless and that there's nothing after the grave. You really believe all those things. You believe that your eye evolved from nothing for no apparent reason, with no hand behind it. Friend, your faith level is far higher than mine. (laughs) Your religion's too difficult for me to believe in. I can't cope with your religion where your God is too difficult to fathom. Your religion doesn't make sense to me. My faith and trust in Jesus, on the other hand, seems grounded in reasonable evidence. What I can see, what I can read about, and what I can believe. Friends, you you can go your way if you like, um, but I'll stick with mine. I've got the banknote, and it's worth holding on to. May God bless you this Christmas time in all your thinkings, your reasonings, and your loving of the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.